All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7, chapter 12, that's wrong, chapter 12, starting in verse 7. We're going to read to verse 13, 2 Samuel 12. I say that because 7 and 12, they've got so many parallels here. 2 Samuel 12, we'll start reading in verse 7, read all the way down to 13. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, It is right, true, and good to refer to you as gracious, for you are exceedingly gracious. Already this morning, we have been recipients of your saving grace communicated to us through the proclamation of the scriptures and now the preaching of that word. And all the while, you are feeding your people, you're building us up into the most holy faith and to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you cause your people to catch a greater vision of the beauty and majesty of your son this morning as he is proclaimed through your word. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen, thank you. You may be seated. Okay, this is one of the pains of preaching line by line, verse by verse through the text. As you come to a text and you think, this doesn't seem like a Mother's Day sermon, and yet... um, Certainly, the themes we see here are applicable to every one of us in our um, reasons and opportunities to bring King Jesus glory. So bear with me. I've got simply just two really basic points as we examine this text this morning um, that I want to point out that I believe this text really does show us. Even though when I say these points, you're going to think, how in the world did you get that from this text? Well, um, the first is this. First, what we see in the text is a reminder that the Lord is exceedingly gracious. The Lord is exceedingly gracious. Um, if you need a little context, maybe you're here and you're just like, we just picked up right in the middle of the story. We did. It's the story of King David. Um, David, who God chose to be king over all of Israel, a man after God's own heart. David, who's probably... Arguably, as we saw last week, maybe the greatest man in the Old Testament, certainly the one who pictures Christ the most. Um, God had 
assigned David the role of king. And not only that, but David was to be the covenant representative of the people of Israel. So how David went, the king, the people of Israel would follow. We see the Lord had favor with David everywhere he went. uh, The Lord showed his favor upon David. And ultimately, David became king of a broken kingdom. Uh, And yet, what we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is David commit one of the most heinous sins in all of the Bible in taking Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to be his own and committing the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Really, as we saw, this one who was supposed to be such a picture of the Messiah, that seed who was promised who would come and crush the serpent's head, instead is now displaying the serpent himself very clearly. He's lying, he's cheating, he's accusing, he is doing all the things we see uh, the devil do in John chapter 11. And yet, yet, we come to this, this text right here, 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, what we saw last week is Nathan the prophet comes and confronts King David with a parable. A parable of a rich man who had many sheep and a poor man who had one single lamb who he loved, who he devoted himself to and who he cherished. And in the parable, the rich man stole the poor man's lamb for himself. And David is incensed with anger at this story. And he says, let this man die. And yet... Where we started in our text is Nathan turns around and says, you are the man. This is not like a, you're the man kind of sort of way. We'd see it in our culture. This is, this is you. This is what you have done. And now what we see is the Lord address David through Nathan the prophet. And we're kind of wondering, since we've read the story so far, what's going to happen? I mean, up until this point, these people have committed sins like this, particularly as covenant representatives of the Lord, They've lost their lives immediately. They've been punished. What is the Lord going to do to David? Well, we see the Lord is exceedingly gracious. And I want to kind of give you the scope of that through the rest of the scriptures. Because first, I I want you to see that we know that God is gracious to all of creation. The Lord has been and is gracious to all of creation. Hasn't he? Uh, In fact, we see this everywhere. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. As the psalmist explains in Psalm 104 verses 27 through 30, everyone and everything is dependent upon the Lord for their existence. The psalmist writes this, these all wait for you. That's what we're saying, right? That you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they're filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. One commentator, uh, Craig A. Carter, said this. He said, all things that exist, including both material and spiritual beings, depend entirely on God for their existence in the first place and for their continuation in existence. God's entire relationship to his creation is one of grace. God is the one who acts in freedom. In other words, 
the, the Lord acts freely, not under obligation, and he is bound only by his very nature to do good. He gives good gifts because he in himself is good. And he does so graciously and freely, not as a transaction, not as in some way in order to compensate those who have merited or earned in any way, shape, or form those good gifts. He owes no person a debt. In the case of David, we see this very clearly. God himself is just simply good. He exudes his goodness. In fact, if I might put it this way, in in the case of David, there's even more grace. God was exceedingly gracious to David in our text. God is gracious to all of creation, certainly, but we're reminded in our passage, God has been exceedingly gracious to David. How do we know that? Well, we've been in 2 Samuel quite some time, haven't we? And in that, we've seen a lot of 1 Samuel. We know the story. The Lord anointed David, not another, to be king over Israel. The Lord delivered David out from the hand of Saul. The Lord gave David the throne. He gave David the wives and authority over Israel and Judah, as it says in the text. And it says the Lord would have even given David more. So this is not simply what we would say the common grace is that every creature experiences every day from his creator. David was the recipient of even more grace, even a greater grace, an extravagant grace. David was appointed, delivered, and established for the sake of God's people. He was a recipient of the Hesed love of God, that covenant love And as we read in 2 Samuel 5, David became greater and greater for precisely because the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of all creation was with him. In chapter 8, when David has victories over these long-standing enemies of Israel, we know and we read that they're precisely because the Lord is with him. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So David therefore knew even a more peculiar favor from the Lord. David knew a peculiar favor that should, and this is really the point of even the entire passage, that should have compelled David to greater covenant fidelity to his Lord. In fact, greater grace demands a greater fidelity. It does. Greater grace demands a greater fidelity. This principle is taught in a slightly different way in the passage of Luke chapter 7. A story most of you probably are familiar with. There Jesus is dining with one of the Pharisees when a sinful woman comes up and begins to wash his feet with her tears and her hair. And she kisses Jesus' feet and she anoints them with ointment and the Pharisee condemns Jesus in his heart in Luke 7 saying this, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And so Jesus tells the Pharisee a parable and then he asks this follow-up question. The parable is this in verse 41 of Luke 7, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? See, the point is clear. It's not that the woman was a greater sinner than the Pharisee, but but he who recognizes the depths of one's own sin against the Lord will be moved to a greater love when forgiveness is extended. Or they should, anyway. 
The principle also applies to grace. If there were two men and the master was to give one a loaf of bread and a small one-room house in which to abide, while there was another servant and his master was to give him a great palace and to make him ruler over all of his other servants, to give him a king's table full of the very best of the delicacies of the land, which, which one would love the master more? See, we know naturally, intuitively, we would expect the one who has received more to express greater love or greater gratitude or greater fidelity. Now, as with Jesus' parable about the two debtors, the point is not simply to say that one has received an abundance and one has barely received anything. The principle that's taught is those who've received grace from God should respond with love and gratitude to him. There's a correlation between the amount of grace given and the expectation of a response of greater gratitude and fidelity. We see it time and time again in the scriptures. Now, obviously, we got to make a qualifying point here, don't we? You've probably been waiting for me to make this point, and I will. The reality is, in the divine economy, we know every human is a sinner. Every human owes a debt to God that they cannot pay. Every human being has received more gracious gifts from their creator than they will ever possibly acknowledge. But David was the recipient of greater grace. As the Lord says in in verse 7, I anointed you king over Israel, Israel and I delivered you. From the hand of Saul, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. See, David confessed or acknowledged this greater grace himself all the way back in chapter 7, verse 18. Do you remember his response to the covenant that God made with him in verse 18? He says, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far. The Lord never made promises like that to Saul. He had not appointed Abner or Joab to be prince over his people of Israel. What David has received is a greater manifestation of, manifestation of divine favor. It's a greater grace that requires a greater response. But sadly, David's Lord was not the recipient of a greater gratitude and greater covenant fidelity or faithfulness. In fact, when I think about the audience to which this book was written, Israel could relate, couldn't they? I think Israel would be able to relate to this incongruity between the grace and mercy of God on the one hand and the ingratitude or lack of fidelity on the other. Like David, the Lord had been exceedingly gracious to Israel. Had he not? The Lord was exceedingly gracious to Israel. Just like David... Israel had been appointed, delivered, and had been given what they did not build or harvest on their own. The Lord appointed Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, not because they were more numerous according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, or more righteous according to Deuteronomy chapter 9, but simply because the Lord loved them freely. He was keeping the oath he swore to their father. Just like the Lord delivered David from the hand of Saul, the Lord delivered Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, from the hand of Sion, from the hand of Og, and and the kings of the promised land over and over and over again. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 10 through 12 tells us this. So shall it be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Houses full of all good things which you did not fill. Hone out wells which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full. Then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. See, Israel could read David's story. The original audience here could hear this story and see themselves. Like David, Israel also had despised the word of the Lord. Like David, Israel had despised their God. But what about us? Hopefully, I don't have to convince you of this, friends. We, we are the recipients of even greater grace than David. Did you know that? We are. We are the recipients of even greater grace than David. In the New Testament, there's this distinction that's clearly made between what we call saving grace and common grace. That distinction does exist also in the Old Testament. It's just harder to see. It's concealed at times, harder to identify with any precision because of the physical, prototypical, and temporary forms or shadows it's seen in. But what was shadow in the Old Testament becomes substance in the New Once Christ comes, what was concealed in the old is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we have the record of that revelation, which is a huge part of the point I'm making here. We've received greater grace because of the greater revelation and manifestation of God's salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. We know that. We see the click strip. And listen, this is all throughout the text. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. Paul explains it this way. Better than I could. He says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and where are earth in him. See, he didn't make it known to them in the Old Testament the same way he has made it known to us. We have that revelation. As Peter puts it this way, we we now know what the prophets longed to see long ago. 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11 tells us this. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Friends, do you understand what we have in the word? In this revelation, we have what their eyes saw, what their hands touched and their ears heard proclaimed. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. That's greater grace that's been bestowed upon us than that in the former time. We could rehearse this over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 says. It's what the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews, please understand this. In fact, don't understand me though, because I want you to know all believers throughout history, redemptive history, of course they have received the substance of their salvation with all of its attending spiritual blessings through faith in the Messiah promised and now come. Even so, what we have is better, so says the New Testament, because we have the fullness of the revelation of God, of what was hidden in types and shadows before the eternal Son of God stepped into time and space, in flesh and blood, in order to lay down his life for sinners. 
So you and I, we have received immeasurable and valuable grace through the preaching of Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it, he says, This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Even though, even they, those who are in the old, long to look into it and see what is now ours in Christ. Again, I could go on and on. Hopefully, at this point, you're just sitting there saying yes and amen. I agree with that. We know this. But we are recipients of greater grace. However, we've got to apply that, don't we? Because if that's true, that kind of means something for us. That means if we're the recipients of greater grace and greater grace demands greater fidelity, then should not our response be one of greater gratitude and greater fidelity? Should it not? Certainly. Just, just think about the same language of what God appointed to David, right? God has appointed every believer to be an heir with Christ, No, he hasn't given us the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. He's given us much more. (laughs) He's appointed us an heir of Christ, which means an heir of what? All things. Not just receiving the house of Israel and Judah, but the whole world. God has not simply delivered us out of the hands of some human enemy, but he's delivered us from Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air, who we formerly gladly followed. He's delivered us from the guilt and power of sin. He's not simply given us some physical temporary blessings, but every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He who did not withhold his own son, will he withhold any good thing from his people? Has he? What has the Lord withheld from you? So saint, we should love the Lord In fact, who should love the Lord more than you and I? Honestly, we should offer him greater gratitude. Who should offer the Lord greater gratitude than you and I? Who should be a better steward of the gifts he's given us than you and I? Who should faithfully serve the Lord more than his people? And let's just bring it really concrete. Who should love the Lord more than his people here at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables? We celebrated 65 years of ministry in this community, folks. You get the laundry list of the people who've been affected by the preaching and proclamation of the pastors that have been raised at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables. You reach the ends of the earth. Who should love the Lord? Why? Because we, we did something right? No. It's because the Lord is exceedingly gracious. Therefore, we should express greater covenant fidelity to him and a greater gratitude. Are we? See, the Lord is not only exceedingly gracious, as we see in this passage, but he's also extravagantly merciful. He's exceedingly gracious and extravagantly merciful. In fact, let's just go to the same hooks we used last time in the last section. We see he's merciful to all of creation, right? Right? 
We know that. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us this in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul teaches a similar thing in Romans chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance... But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God currently, right now, is displaying his mercy to all of creation as he continues to give good gifts to the good and evil alike. And he's currently displaying his mercy to all of creation, passing over their sin in this present time so that they might recognize his kindness and patience. We say it all the time, right? You know that, that breath that you took, that was from the Lord, that was a gift. Have you, have you thanked him? But, but hear me, the purpose for that, if you're an unbeliever, that purpose for that breath is that you would come to repentance. That, that's his mercy, His mercy is not just sustaining your life for life's sake. His mercy is sustaining your life so that you might know the riches of his glory. You might see your very great purpose in this life to bring honor and glory to the king who loved you, created you, and sent his son to die for your sins. It's to repent of your rebellion or suffer the consequences of not doing so. And so, to our passage, yes, the Lord is merciful to all of creation, but the Lord is extravagantly merciful to David. Isn't he? Verses 9 through 13, David has clearly broken his covenant with the Lord. He's clearly broken the law in its, in its simplest, most straightforward presentation. He's broken the sixth commandment. He has directed and commanded the murder of a man. He's broken the seventh commandment. Committing adultery with Uriah's wife. He's broken the tenth commandment, coveting her. So, so at a minimum, let's just say we've got three commandments broken in one chapter the Lord could have simply condemned him just on those grounds. But, but notice, notice in the passage how David's sin is framed. How it's conveyed to us, right? This is critical. David has not simply broken the commandment. That's not even what the Lord says here. He's despised the commandment of the Lord. And in so doing, he has despised the Lord. I need you to hear this. Sin is not simply breaking some impersonal rule. Sin is always and everywhere a personal offense against a personal God. Always and everywhere. Every time. That's what sin is. A personal offense against a personal God. I've been reading this book called How Long, O Lord. It's a classic. If you haven't read it, it's by D.A. Carson. It's really, really great. Deals with, with essentially longing for the Lord to return, right? And wondering when he's coming back and dealing with the sufferings and issues in the present time while we do. Uh, but D.A. Carson in that book, he explains it this way. He says this. He says, for the Christian, virtually all that we are held responsible for, all that we obey or disobey, all that we choose uh, or disavow is foundational defined by what God has commanded or forbidden. But the notion of God commanding or forbidding depends on understanding that God is personal. 
Christians are not saying that there is an impersonal it tied up with the creation and we must get ourselves in line with the way the creation operates if we're to function smoothly within creation. I think, it, I think he says that because the temptation is to think of law in those terms, to somehow make law abstract from God himself, to, to bind ourselves up within the created order as though God's not involved with it at all. But we're not deist, Right? We're still dealing with a personal God who is near to each and every one of us and demands this allegiance, trust, and obedience of every one of his creatures. I'll finish the quote here. So Carson concludes, we're not saying there's an impersonal it. Christians are saying that there is a personal he out there. A heavenly father separate from the creation. And what makes sin heinous is that it is a defiance of what he prescribes or forbids. Our moral responsibility is tied up to our accountability to him. That's what we see in the text, right? Look again at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Because last week, remember, God sees all. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Why? Because you have despised me. See, our text makes this point abundantly clear. David has not just broken some abstract law put in place by some God who just wound up the universe and then stepped back letting it all go. David has offended his God. He's despised his Lord. And friends, when we sin, that's exactly what we do. We despise the Lord. See, too often we we conceive of sin like it's just the law of the land in America. It's not like that. It's not like speeding, for instance, right? Can you, can you imagine a cop pulling you over because you're going so fast and he's coming up to your window, he's just weeping, right? He's just so sad. He's like, how, how could you speed in the area you know that I police? What are you thinking? Why did you do this to me? You know that I'm here. No, that'd be weird, Right? But, but hear me, listen, the problem is we often think about breaking God's law in those terms. We, we think about a cop who comes up and says, you broke the law, here's your ticket and moves on. But, but, but that's not it at all. That's not what it's like to break God's law. It's why the scriptures constantly use the analogy of a father or husband because sin is deeply personal. It's your wife coming home and finding you with another woman. That is sin, all of it. And listen, I I labor to make this point because if you don't understand that, then you can't understand mercy. Mercy will just become some sort of mechanical, impersonal process by which you get off the hook. That's not mercy. In our passage, God is personally offended by David. This God, however, willfully passes over David's sin. He willingly and freely does not count it against David. And let's just be clear, had he done so, death would have been the penalty. Right? Genesis 9 will tell us that much as well as other places. But, but even just consider the immediate context of First and Second Samuel. Eli and his sons were, were put to death for not honoring the Lord and doing what was evil in his sight. Saul and his sons have been put to death for not obeying the word of the Lord. 
Nabal was struck down for dishonoring David. Even more recently, Uzzah, remember Uzzah? Uzzah was struck down for reaching out of his hand and touching the ark. Here is David, who has broken the commandment at least three, despised the word of the Lord, and despised the Lord himself. Will he not die? What does the Lord say? Nathan tells David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Friends, the Lord is exceedingly merciful to David. And I want us to hear something about this because this is very important. The personal nature of sin also helps us to understand something else. And it's this. God's mercy cannot be grounded in the passing by. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about it. God's mercy can't be grounded in the passing by. It can't simply be grounded in the fact. You know what? I put away your sin, okay? It's, It's no big deal. Don't worry about it anymore, David. A cop can walk up to your window and say, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. Your wife can't just say, you know what, honey, forget about it. Whenever you're done with your affair, we need to talk. No. To understand this even better, we have to understand that this is going to wrap her. This is going to make your ears bleed. God's not a man, right? He does not forget. So do you understand what this means? Actually, you don't, because I, I don't. But just for a moment, realize this. God, God holds all of time in his mind at the same time. Whatever that means, right? We often conceive of God as one of us. God is personal, but he's not a person in the sense that we are. Not in the exact same way. If there's any type of sequence for God, we don't understand it. Can we agree to that? He's not part of our time and space, but he transcends it. He holds it together. So has he, he has from the beginning, and so he will to the end at the same time. Understand that, that for us, extending mercy, it almost always everywhere involves some sort of change. Like if, if, our, if our spouse was unfaithful over time, we would gain distant from that event. We would soon, in a sense, at some point, forget We would change in our disposition toward that event. Not so with God. The offense, the penalty, the debt, it must be dealt with. It cannot be dismissed or passed over in the way we would forgive others by passing over sin. Do we understand that? God's not like us. So the Lord can't simply just say, well, let's let bygones be bygones here like we do. He isn't passing by David's sins as to forget about it. The offense and penalty is present. The wrath towards David's sin is present. It won't simply dissipate with time. Justice demands the payment for the offense against God. Always and forever because he holds time in his hands. So so think about this. If we can understand this, we can appreciate better the tension that exists in this text. See, See, the death of Eli and his sons... Makes sense. The death of Saul and his sons makes sense. The death of Nabal and yeah, even our boy Uzzah makes sense. But here's the point. The forgiveness of David is incongruent. It's your word of the day. My mom's going to get on to me that. She (laughs) likes me to use simple words. But you guys are smart. The forgiveness of David is incongruent. What I mean by that is it's a logical grace. It's a logical. 
especially up to this point before the coming of Christ. There is an incongruence here that is impossible for us to understand. It just doesn't jive well. Something's broken here. Something's wrong. Sin has to be dealt with, right? How is it that David lives? Yes, we understand the self-revelation of God to Moses. God will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. But we know that God's also just. He's both at the same time infinitely. So where's the justice here? We're going to get to that next week. But first, let's finish out the sort of map we set for ourselves. Remember the audience? Israel can relate to this as well, can't they? Israel has been the recipients of God's extravagant mercy. We know that. Israel has despised the word of the Lord clearly. Just read the book of Judges, right? Or in the immediate context, had she not rejected her king in 1 Samuel 8? Israel has despised her Lord. According to the testimony of the Lord himself, Israel has since the beginning forsaken the Lord and served other gods. And what's the Lord done? He has patiently endured passing by their sins, putting them away. They've not died. They continue to live in the land with their Lord. Why? Because of his extravagant mercy. All right, you know where I'm going next, right? Do I even have to say it? Well, you know I'm going to. I will. This should be elementary, rudimentary. Should be so basic that you're almost saying it with me as I say it. We are the recipients of greater mercy. You and I, we are the recipients of the most extravagant of mercy. Could Israel corporately say that there's no longer any condemnation for those who sacrifice bull and goats? Could they say that? No, in fact, the son does eventually die, does he not? Israel experiences the death of exile as they're sent away. Not so with us. For us, death has been swallowed up. For us, death has been defeated. For us, it will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and all who belong to him on that last day. But even now, death no longer threatens us. Why? Because we've died in Christ. We've been raised with him and there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's greater mercy. So what should our response be? Even greater gratitude, even greater love, even greater fidelity to such a great God. Friend, at the very core of your being as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you are one who has been shown exceedingly greater grace and extravagantly greater mercy. Now tell me, what does greater gratitude, greater love, and greater covenant fidelity look like for you today? What does it look like? What does it look like for you tomorrow as you begin that wonderful, blessed Monday we all seem to love? May we be a people who constantly display a life marked by exceedingly greater grace and extravagantly greater mercy. 
And we know the only way we can and will is because our sin had been put away and will not surely die. But our sin was placed on Jesus and he surely died for us. We'll see that foreshadowed and pictured next week, Lord willing. Would you stand as we close together? Father, what, what gifts of grace and mercy have you shown us in your son? That while we were yet sinners, while our sin is ever personal to you, you have yet to cause us to die. And Lord, we know in, in David's mind, he's speaking physically, and yet we know even more you're speaking spiritually. That's it for us. Father, spiritually speaking, we shall never die because you didn't just put our sin away, you put it on your son. He who had never sinned, who had never personally offended his father, Lord, for the sake of your people, for the love of your people and for your glory, you put our sin on him. So Lord, how could we not display greater love greater covenant fidelity to you whatever that looks like in our life whether it's our giving whatever it's our time our service the amount of priority we give your bride the church the amount of time and priority we give our family that you've given us to shepherd and to love or the reality is we really don't have to pry because as we've sought your face even this morning in our time of confession you have brought to light the areas in which we struggle and Lord, help us see that the answer is not just a list of things to do better. Lord, just to grab ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get to work. The answer is to dwell upon your exceedingly greater grace and your extravagantly greater mercy. And Lord, if our hearts are not stirred and compelled to a greater covenant fidelity, once we do that, then Lord, we really don't know you. We, we can't possibly really know you if we dwell on the gospel and it doesn't motivate us to greater works. So Lord, help us see clearly Lord, the areas we struggle in the light of your word and we beg you, Father, continue to show us your exceeding mercy and extravagant or exceeding grace and extravagant mercy. We trust that you will. We're thankful that we know you will. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus the giver of every good gift. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to the time of invitation now, um, for the church, we know it pretty well, right? What does it look like for you today to exhibit a greater covenant fidelity to the Lord who has shown you such exceeding grace and extravagant mercy? What does that look like? And, and if you need help with that, just kind of figuring that out or just walking through that or even confessing that and Looking for accountability, I can tell you no greater place to start than the local church. Your brothers and sisters who aren't using this in any way, shape, or form to judge you because we all, as we saw last week, stand bare before the cross. And we all are recipients of greater grace and mercy. So we should be here to love one another, encourage one another, as long as it's called today, so that we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that is exactly what we're here for. 
So if you're here this morning and there's just been some way in your life you see that you haven't been striving in covenant, greater covenant fidelity, friends, please confess that. Walk through that with somebody here. It, it pains me to fear the amount of people who can walk in and out of church on Sunday mornings and never talk about the Lord, never have a discussion about what Jesus has done and is doing. So please, don't leave here so quickly today. Stay and be encouraged and encourage others. Primarily, I want to point to those who may be here this morning. They don't know where they stand before the Lord. I pray that you hear the story of the gospel and know that you, like David, have broken the commandments of a holy God. You, like David, Stand exposed, your heart's exposed, and the Lord knows, he sees all. He sees how you've sinned against him. And understand that he is just, as we saw even with Eli and Saul and Uzzah. The Lord cannot look upon wickedness with favor. His eyes are too pure to approve evil. And, and that's a problem for you unless somebody stands in your place and pays for your sins. You can't do it with enough good works because you already are guilty of breaking the law. You, you need someone to stand in your stead and yet that someone has to be somebody who has never broken God's law. The Bible tells us there's only one. His name is Jesus, fully God, fully man. He has come and has never personally offended his father, never sinned in any way, shape or form. Love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself perfectly and yet... He willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people with the very purpose so that God the Father could look at those who believe on Jesus and say, your sins have been passed by. You shall not surely die. Friends, if you don't know whether or not you're going to hear those words on the day of your death, I encourage you, please grab somebody by the hand and tell them today. I need to know that I've been shown exceeding grace and extravagant mercy in the way that you have. Because I'm trusting and resting in the finished work of Christ. If you've yet today to repent of your sins and turn away from your sinful lifestyle with you being the center of the the universe and, and turn towards Jesus as king and believed in his finished work on the cross, then today is the day of salvation for you if you would but repent and believe. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever prayer that looks like, we'd love to walk through that with you. Brother Justin will be down here, down front at the end of our service. My wife and I will be at the back of our um, sanctuary here to welcome you and thank you for coming. We'd love to talk about Jesus with you. Uh, Any of my other brothers and sisters love to talk about Jesus today? Show show of hands. All right. Look around. See, you got plenty of people. Whatever we can do. Have you had a wonderful day in the house of the Lord? Have you been shown exceeding grace and extravagant mercy? Praise be to God for his great grace.